are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. Uh, I've missed you and missed the group. Uh, it's always hard to be away, but hopefully we'll get back in our routine here in the coming weeks. I have no plans uh, of to go anywhere for a good while. So, uh, but we're coming towards the end of volume one, believe it or not. And and so we are on 397, number 63, as I said, and uh, we're still considering uh, the distinctive marks of humility. And again, you know, it's a very challenging thing to wade through. And uh, we've I've described it a little bit as circling around a gem and seeing the many different facets of it and its beauty from different perspectives. And this is what the uh, fathers do do for us, I think, as they, they describe it. And as we are given, given the illustrative examples uh, that they offer us, that we, we begin to see what this looks like and how it's manifest in a person's li life. And even then, I think it's challenging to imagine our embracing it uh, in a similar way, I think, when we read the gospel. Uh, loving one's enemies or not resisting one who's evil and uh, uh, you know, so many of the other teachings of our Lord, the Beatitudes, that it's uh, hard to imagine it. And especially when it's made so clear and concrete as it is for us in these stories. And this is where, again, we have to suspend judgment and allow ourselves to be drawn along and, uh, allow the, the fathers to offer us some light uh, through their teachings. So again, we're on number 63. An elder said, he who has humility is not angered, nor does he anger anyone. So this is what I meant. Uh, it's hard to imagine something such as this, uh, not uh, being angered by another and seeking certainly not to cause another any anger, not to seek to agitate uh, another person or make them lose peace of mind and heart and to be so deeply rooted in the peace of Christ and confident in his love and in his promises that uh, despite what happens to us, we are not uh, drawn to anger against another. And uh, this takes deep faith on our part and uh, uh, deep prayer life to be immersed in, in Christ. This is heroic virtue and one would say a godly or divine virtue. 
And so we're, again, it's clear, we're not talking about the perfection of natural virtue for ourselves, that we're being called upon to love others as God loves us and to be able to engage others with mercy and compassion as God looks upon us when we uh, fall into sin or even when we turn away from him. Number 64, an elder was asked, why do demons war on us so much? Because we throw our weapons away, answered the elder. And by weapons, I mean dishonor, humility, non-acquisitiveness, and patience. It's interesting to think of these things as weapons with which we would fight a battle to sustain this virtue of humility within us, that we would be willing to endure dishonor, that uh, we don't cling to self-esteem, to the extent of somebody says something against us or that is hurtful that we become angry with them. Non-acquisitiveness, that we don't gather so many things that if we were to lose them or if someone were to take something from us, uh, that again, our identity would not be so deeply rooted in the uh, things of this world and worldly goods that we would be moved to set aside virtue which is the more precious gift uh, than anything that we might possess within this world. And then patience, uh, that we would uh, be willing to, to suffer uh, for the other and even to suffer uh, because of them uh, and bear the, the burden of the anger that is directed towards us without giving it back to them and increasing it that like Christ on the cross, we would be able to sp spread our arms open, as it were, in loving embrace. And to see, again, how people are driven, uh, more often than not, by the demons uh, in, into temptations uh, of anger or driven to rage or wrath. And our ability to see that allows us then to endure it uh, and to be long-suffering with others. So it's uh, for the anonymous sinner who asks, we're on page 397, uh, paragraph 64, we just finished. And uh, so again, we, we take up unique weapons in this spiritual battle. And, uh, and it does mean altering our view of life and of ourselves and our self-identity. And uh, I mentioned in previous weeks, St. Francis's question that he would say like a prayer, who am I and who are you God? How this simple question draws us back uh, to, to really examine our identity, how we, how we see ourselves as living in Christ and what that means uh, for our life in the world, but what, also what it means for what we do with our thoughts and our, our feelings and uh, what we do when people treat us harshly, uh, especially when anger would come upon us. 
Louise writes, it reminds me of the Orthodox priest whose life is depicted in the film entitled A Man of God in 2021. Yes, St. Nectarius. You know, it's funny you mention him because on the flight back home, I, I, I watched it on my phone and uh, it's an extraordinary film. And uh, I was talking to a priest today uh, about it who, who loves the movie and has watched it many times. But uh, really, Nectarius throughout the majority of his life as a priest and as a bishop was slandered, that he led this holy life and he was loved by the people. He was very attentive to the poor, and, uh, and, but he was scorned and slandered to his spiritual father who then refused to see him and to talk to him. And so uh, Nectarius never knew what he was accused of, uh, but it was clear that it was a malice that had arisen out of envy. And they had convinced his spiritual elder to such an extent that he would, would not respond to any of his letters or accept uh, him, receive him whenever he would seek to visit him. And... Uh, and so he was sent away from Egypt and uh, he was sent to a place where he you know, couldn't even find work uh, and eventually became you know, a chaplain at a, uh, a religious school, a teacher there and began to write and help to establish a women's community that was attacked as well. And throughout, throughout his whole life, uh, individuals were seeking to diminish his character, but to destroy the things that he was seeking to create, as well as those in his care. And so as an example of humility and of patience and long suffering, uh, close to our own day, he's a perfect example of it. And it wasn't until after his death that those who had accused him uh, make uh, an official apology for how he was treated. Uh, but, uh, you know, throughout the movie, and the priest and I were talking about this, uh, that we see where his strength comes from. And if you're watching closely, you see him engaged in this constant prayer uh, and prostrations one after another. And the priest mentioned to me, he said, who's watched it like 10 times, he says, they showed calluses on his knuckles uh, from having you know, done so so often, whether inside or outside, wherever he might uh, be struggling, he would be saying the Jesus prayer, but with each one of them making a, a full prostration. And uh, in, in order that... Uh, he might overcome, you know, certainly the emotions that were pulling so, so uh, hard upon his soul that especially when there was injustice directed towards those whom he loved and that were in his care. And, uh, and so it was a great cross that he bore. So I'd highly recommend it. You know, it's rare that a religious movie comes out that is done so well. And, uh, and this, this is one of them. So man of God about St. Nectarius. Number 65, oh, Eric writes, today I was tempted to respond angrily to someone. I needed to hear this today. Yes, that would be almost every day, I think, for us, you know, whether it's driving or, or whatever it might be, how quickly uh, we can become inflamed 
with anger. And again, this is why the constancy for prayer is needed. Number 65, an elder was asked, what is humility? He replied, when your brother sins against you and you forgive him before he asks your forgiveness. <laughs> uh, this training the human heart uh, to do this, to create this habit of virtue, to seek this habit of virtue is a difficult one. To offer forgiveness freely and genuinely uh, to another uh, before uh, your brother uh, even asks for it. And uh, again, this is to place virtue and the good of the other uh, so not only our own virtue, but the, the salvation of the other soul and to protect their peace of mind and heart and to draw them back into the graces of God, that we would anticipate the need there and respond to it even before it is asked. And again, this requires a kind of watchfulness of heart, awareness of what is going on in our heart, as well as the constant remembrance of God. So that when these moments arise, we're able to respond without hesitation. Uh, because we know how quickly things can escalate in uh, circumstances that come upon, upon us so quickly and catch us off guard. And uh, often the evil one will do that where we're feeling fatigued or someone uh, has been, you know, treating us poorly and uh, we again we let down our guard and something is said and uh, we let loose a harsh word uh, rather than moving to this position of offering forgiveness uh, so many of the saints and so, so many i think holy individuals in our own day uh, would pray the stations of the cross on a daily basis. And we're, we're used to doing things often uh, seasonally. And with stations of the cross in particular, we, uh, at least in the Latin rite, we would do this, uh, you know, during Lent in particular. And often that can get etched in your mind. But remember a religious sister saying that every day uh, she would say the stations of the cross because it would keep before her uh, her mind and her heart, uh, this kind of self-emptying and selfless love uh, that had been given to her. And uh, in, in many ways, it's a very beautiful thing uh, to have before our minds always the, the, this image of perfect love. Uh, St. Paul of the Cross, similarly, is a beautiful example uh, of this in his writings, um, the Flowers of the Passion, I think we've mentioned here before, a wonderful book, uh, but ways to keep our minds and our hearts fixed upon the selfless love of the cross in order, again, that that would be the lens through which we would view others and the circumstances of our daily life. Louise writes, psychologically, forgiveness is seen as letting go of anger. Would you say that this, that it is more than this? Uh, I would say that it certainly does include include it and uh, capture it. You know, not holding on to something that the other does, and be willing um, 
you know, the image that comes to mind of the disciples wiping the dust off of their feet when they are rejected uh, by a particular town. And we often read that, uh, and it does sort of have that connotation, but we read it uh, in a harsh way, like, I'm wa washing my hands of you. And, but I don't think it really captures the, the spirit of it. I think what we are, are wiping the dust off of our feet and moving on is that we would let go of any anger at that lack of receptivity and allow ourselves to move on in seeking to fulfill the, the, the will of the Lord. That if we hold on to resentments uh, or the rejection of others, it can prevent us from uh, uh, carrying on with what God has entrusted to us and we can become fixated upon it, you know, trying to undo it um, rather than si simply letting it go. And we have this tendency of nursing and nurturing uh, resentments. And so often they can become something that is greater than even the wound that we initially receive. Uh, that we add to it, we nurse it, we allow it to grow within the heart. And so our ability to let it go uh, is not, uh, you know, it's not as though we are treating these things as having no meaning, but we don't want it uh, to become something so great then that we, it makes us incapable of loving the other or that we get so embroiled in our anger that it begins to shape uh, our 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 self awareness. What we are in, uh, uh, the the whole quality of our day or days can be wrapped up within the anger, and uh, and the Lord would have us be free of it altogether. Uh, Susanna Joy writes, I came home and a person who was, has been harassing and unapologetic was sitting in my kitchen having a happy chat with my dearest friend here in the community. Uh, I could even get, uh, couldn't even get my, could even get my tea water to boil trying to let it go. Could not even get my tea, tea water to boil trying to let it go. Yes, you know, the, the, I don't think we want to be cavalier you know, in the way that we talk about these things, that it is warfare. And the weapons are, as the elder above uh, says, you know, the dishonor, non-acquisitiveness, patience, uh, this rootedness in Christ, strengthened by the grace of the sacraments, unceasing prayer, that um, there are going to be things that seem to be absurdities in our life. And I think especially when they reach that level, you know, where there's no reasoning with the other or what is being done seems unreasonable or is an affront to our sensibilities. That's when it's most challenging for us. And I think this is why uh, having this constant remembrance of God and being watchful of heart uh, is so necessary because things like this can come upon us to th think about this, someone sitting in your home, in your kitchen, who's been uh, harassing you uh, would be so jarring. 
because, uh, you know, talk about losing one's safe space, having somebody in your own home, uh, all of a sudden you feel very vulnerable. And uh, again, I think this is where our being in union with Christ uh, is what is most important. You know, it's not by our own strength. It's by the one who made himself perfectly vulnerable that we find the capacity to respond in that situation, even if it is remaining silent. Our heart might be raging within us, uh, but if we're able to keep ourselves from uh, acting upon it, then in one sense, the battle is won, uh, because then we can, you know, get to that space that we need to, to pray and uh, to allow the mind and the heart to calm. And even in circumstances like this, you know, certainly one might have to set boundaries. There are certain individuals where you have to uh, raise the walls high and thick uh, because of the toxic nature of a relationship or its unhealthiness, or even in some ways, the radical disorder of it that could be somewhat dangerous too. But even then, uh, when we have to take such actions, we want that to be shaped by, by grace and by love. Number 66. It was said of Abba Sissos that he once fell ill. The elders sat beside him and asked him, Abba, what do you see? He replied, I see some beings who have come for me, and I am imploring them to allow me to repent a little. Then one of the elders asked him again, and if they allow you this, can you still use the time for repentance? Even if I cannot, replied Abbasissus, I can groan a little over my soul, and this is sufficient for me. It's an interesting uh, image and thought, and it took and uh, a while of thinking about it, but what he could mean uh, that, you know, at certain points we are brought to a kind of raw endurance where the circumstances are such that we have no words to express it. And, uh, you know, whether it's something uh, like Abbasissos, you know, a deep illness drawing close to death itself, uh, that uh, one can bring oneself to, to groan, as it were, as an expression of one's desire. And the image that comes to mind is that of the Holy Spirit that uh, cries out with groans that are beyond words. And uh, one can imagine Sissos making reference to, to this, that you know, even if I do not have the words, or, or the capacity to act upon it, that I still have this, the spirit of God within me and that I can unite this groan uh, of uh, penance or repentance uh, to the Lord that is then taken up by the spirit and perfected. And uh, I think this is something important for us to understand. There are going to be moments in our life where we are, are brought low or where you're brought to that point of raw endurance where life has reached this point that it seems to be too much for us or where we lose sight of 
you know, what God could possibly ask us, be asking of us, or the point of what it is that we are suffering. And that like Abba Sissos, perhaps only able to let out a sigh, but at times that sigh can come from a deeper place within the human heart than a spoken prayer. And, you know, I imagine many people have, you know, fallen on their knees before the Blessed Sacrament in church or in their rooms with exactly that feeling. Or maybe it's simply tears that are shed, that often those are more expressive or the only thing that can express what is going on within the human mind and heart. Uh, anonymous Sinner writes, likewise, the Spirit helps, quoting here Romans, helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts of men knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit intercedes for the saints. So even if I'm given that time and cannot get forward a word, the Spirit knows what is needed for us in those moments when all has grown dark for us. And certainly, you know, nobody can go through the experience of dying with us. People can be present with us, but on the most intimate level, it is God himself, Christ himself present to us and the gift of his spirit. Uh, and that allows, you know, even in those moments for, uh, you know, this perfect uh, cry of love from the heart. Any thoughts on Abbasissos or this, any of the paragraphs so far? Okay. Thank you for the quote. That was very helpful. Number 67. Once some people went to the Thebaid to an elder, taking with them a demonized man for him to cure. The elder refused since he did not consider himself worthy. But after they implored him many times, he said to the demon, come out of God's creature. The demon answered, I am coming out, but I ask you to tell me one thing. Who are the goats and who are the sheep? I am the goats, replied the elder. And as for the sheep, God knows who they are. As soon as the demon heard this answer, he cried out with a loud voice, I'm coming out because of your humility. And that at that very moment, he came out of the demonized man. This is, uh, you know, there have been a few times where these kind of stories have come up and I love them above all because it is the, the virtue enacted, embodied in the individual that has the power over the enemies, not the words, uh, but where the person embodies the, the, the virtue of Christ or the love of Christ, or in this case, the humility of Christ. And this is what has the power to cast out the demons. And you remember, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, where uh, the mother with the young daughter who had a demon within her is brought into a monk and the little girl runs over and she smacks the monk across the face and he turns the cheek and the demon is cast out from doing so and uh, 
you know, in an, in an age where uh, there is a glut of words and religious words too, and a lot of talk about God, I think this is a good reminder of the call to live what it is that we read and embody it more than to talk about it. And what power this has, uh, a virtue that is truly lived and that is uh, a reflection of Christ uh, ha has the greatest power. Number 68, the elders used to say that when we are not undergoing warfare, it is then that we are in greater need of being humbled, since God, knowing our infirmity, covers us. But if we are boastful, God removes his protection from us, and we go to perdition. So, you know, warfare you know, one of the things that we often moan and and groan about and complain about uh, is actually a sign for us that we are engaged in the spiritual battle. You know, uh, being warred against is a sign that we are warring ourselves against the demons. And when we are in this state of peace, there can arise this illusion, again, that it is by our own strength or by our own goodness that we are free of such things. And so the wisdom of the elders is that we need to become ever so watchful in those times and to be especially humble and attentive to our acknowledgement of the grace of God in our life. Otherwise, uh, we will often ex experience a speedy fall. Remember again, pride rideth before the fall, that uh, the moment that we think that we have control of ourselves or, or of demons of all things that uh, a fall is quick to follow. A brother asked an elder, what does it mean for a man to progress according to God? A man's progress is humility, replied the elder. The more a man descends to humility, the more he is raised up in progress which uh, you know, says something important that we probably aren't going to be able to see our progress if we are humble and would not likely ask that question to begin with, knowing you know, the poverty of our sin and our need for God. And uh, again, uh, one of the reasons why we would be constantly crying out the Jesus prayer uh, you know, for God's strength and also to have mercy upon us as sinners that we acknowledge our poverty and our need for him at every moment. Uh, this is the, the safest path. Uh, again, the moment that we lose sight of that, or even to start thinking about progress, uh, we can place ourselves in harm's way. And, you know, jumping back to one of the previous stories, you know, where the, the monk says, I am the goats. You know, I am the ones that are going to be put on the side destined for perdition. And, you know, again, often we see those simple, you know, pious sayings of the saints. But I think they see the truth about themselves. You know, the multitude of the sins not seen. That even the just sin, you know, seven times a day perfectly. And so... You know, as John Climacus tells us, you know, that 
we can only claim for ourselves the things that we did before our birth, you know, that, <laughs> uh, which is to say, you know, we would have to have brought ourselves into being uh, or claim that for ourselves. And so at every step, um, we have to acknowledge that it's by God's grace and by his mercy that we persevere in the life of virtue or, or that we grow in the life of virtue. The, an elder said that if one humbles himself and says to someone, forgive me, he burns up the demons. Uh, so one of the things that's the most difficult for us to do and to utter the words for, forgive me, to ask forgiveness, is again, one of the most powerful weapons. Uh, that even in our uh, trials with, with others, when we are aware of our fault in the matter, that we often will seek to couch it in certain terms. Even sometimes when we go to confession, we will set things up uh, you know, for the confessor, the circumstances that drove me to anger or to, you know, to do something uh, to another. And ra rather than being quick to acknowledge our sin, and similarly, I think with the other, uh, we can be slow to utter those words rather than to acknowledge immediately uh, our fault and to ask forgiveness that uh, we will seek to guard and protect ourselves and our self-esteem in the eyes of the other. That vying for emotional power uh, within relationships can be a very uh, difficult thing. You know, we don't want to let go of it. You know, we can maneuver uh, to have the moral high ground or any position over an another where we have a kind of control. And that isn't always a conscious thing for us. And so we really have to search our hearts deeply to see ways that we do that. Uh, was I the only one who thought the demon would enter the elder since he, he said he was the goats? Uh, I don't know if others thought that as, as well. Uh, I, I think it arose so clearly out of, of, out of, out of a humble heart and this actually truthful again truthful living that he wasn't uttering an untruth in saying it that he knows his own poverty and how it is that he stands before God and uh, you know to place himself among the sheep would be something prideful that you know in our own estimation we often think highly of ourselves but it might not be what God sees of us and what is within our own hearts. And so we have to be very careful in that regard. Yeah. Number, let's see, 71. If the farmer did not cover the eyes of his beast, it would turn round and devour the fruits of his labors. The same thing happens with us. By God's dispensation, we receive coverings for our eyes, lest we see the good deeds that we do and call ourselves blessed and thereby losing our reward. 
This is why God allows us from time to time to have unclean thoughts. And we notice only these in order that we may censure ourselves. For us, these internal pollutions serve to cover our meager goodness. For when a man reproaches himself, then he does not lose his reward. What an interesting image, you know, of God giving us covering, eye coverings, not allowing us to see things that our self-esteem would hunger for, that our ego would hunger for, uh, to have the praise of others, or again, to, to have this sense of having done good. And wherever God sees us leaning in that direction or tending in that direction, then to allow us to see, again, something that so easily comes up within our minds in an impure thought. Uh, and again, in order that we might censure ourselves, reproach ourselves for moving in that direction of self-praise. Uh, we might not be used to this image of having beasts around us, but since I got a couple dogs, I've become very well uh, aware of it, of having to be a secret eater. Because the moment that you they hear the crackling of a package or see something, uh, they're on top of you. I mean, they could be dead asleep and they hear a little bag open and they're running around the corner. And I think that's, you know, that's how we can be in, in the sense of, our, our ego, you know, that there is such a hunger and thirst there that we have uh, driven by our pride uh, that if, again, we hold something out before it, it's going to seek to gobble it down. And uh, so this is where, you know, we do need that kind of watchfulness of heart, but also the protection, the protection of God. An elder was asked, what is humility? He replied, humility is a great and divine work. The path that leads to humility consists in bodily labors and in considering yourself a sinner beneath everyone else. The brother who had posed the question asked again, what does it mean to be beneath everyone else? The elder replied, it means not to be concerned about the sins of others but only about your own and to pray to God unceasingly. Um, it's almost, it's reminiscent of the gospel and who is my neighbor, you know, because there was this sense that there were certain people, you know, one's own race or uh, being, uh, or one's own religion as being one's neighbor. And those outside of that could be treated harshly. And so there's a part of us that can push that same question. Uh, you know, what is humility or what does it mean to place oneself truly beneath uh, others, beneath everyone else? And, uh, you know, again, you know, I think when we look out at the world, how tempting it is, you know, to, to focus upon those those things. And one has to think that there is a kind of manipulation that is demonic of uh, of all the things that are put before our eyes these these days and as news even and uh, because a lot that is put online 
or all these videos that people are, are standing around watching while other people are being beaten up or brutalized. They're taking a video of it to put it online in order that other people might watch it. And realizing that, you know, that person who's videoing it is taking a sick delight, a morbid delight in it, but that it also can appeal in a, a way to our own hearts for one reason or another, either because there is this part of us that takes a morbid delight in these acts of aggression, of seeing them take place, or of being able to judge, uh, you know, something that is so clearly wrong and reprehensible. And so whatever would make it difficult for us to keep our focus upon ourselves, the evil one is going to seek to uh, undermine. And so any way that he could bring before our eyes a weakness in another or a true fault or failing even, uh, he will uh, and uh, convince us that it's, you know, it is a kind of righteous anger. And uh, rather than leaving that judgment to God, or again, of being cognizant of the fact that people are often under the grip of the oppression of the evil one, you know, that have been formed in such a way uh, to act in this fashion that has become habitual. And so rather than looking with compassion or kind of sympathy there or acknowledging that truth, that we will move quickly to judge and to keep the focus upon the self means living in that present moment and again, maintaining a kind of constancy in prayer. You know, when something is happening outside of us, it doesn't take a lot for us to shift our attention from where it needs to be. And the monks in the desert even experienced this. You know, two other monks talking outside of their cell you know, so standing by the window, listening into it, you know, listening to what they're talking about, you know, how easy it can be to pull oneself, to pull one away from where they need to be. This, however, is particularly diff difficult, you know, to, uh, I think when it has to do with things that are, are sinful or evil. Number 73, in the Cenobium, there lived a monk who took upon himself all the burdens of the brethren and who reached the point of accusing himself, even of fornication, saying, I've committed this sin. Some of the monks who were not aware of his virtue began to murmur against him and say, see how many evil things he does and he works no good. The abbot who was familiar with the deeds of this monk said to his accusers, I prefer a single rush mat plated by him with humility to all yours that you plate with pride. If you like, I will give you proof of this from God. He ordered a fire to be lighted. He had each monk bring three rush mats that he had plated, asking the accused monk to bring one of his own as well. Then he commanded that the mats be thrown into the fire. As soon as they were thrown into the fire, all those made by the accusers were burned, while that of the accused brother was not. 
when his former accusers saw this miracle, they were frightened and made a prostration to the monk whom they had accused, thereafter honoring him as a father. And so while this might seem to be an extreme to us here, you know, certainly taking upon himself uh, a, a sin that was not committed, you know, of humbling himself in what would be seen as a foolish kind of fashion uh, or, or or might be even reckless uh, in many people's eyes that it's preferable uh, to be seen in the negative light in his eyes than the possibility of falling into pride. So better to be seen in a negative light by his fellow brothers than to possibly judge judge them and uh you know again you know for so many things we are willing to go to the extreme to uh, achieve or attain them but to attain that which is most precious uh humility that conforms us to christ but also allows them to lift us up where we let go of ego uh cast off the false self uh, that we aren't willing often to, to pay that price, to see it as the, uh, the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field. And so sometimes it's hard for us to listen to these stories. And yet we see here, you know, the, the miracle that has worked, that the discerning eye of the, of the Holy Superior is able to see what is going on uh, with this individual and uh, and is able to reveal it through the burning of these mats that this one made with this virtue of humility endures you know purification by fire the others do not that there's pride mixed in with their humble labors uh are we sure he didn't commit the sin of fornication, perhaps in a sense in his heart? No, we're not sure of that, but I think it's, I think the indication from the story is that, uh, you know, he reached the point of accusing himself even of fornication. That uh, I think the, the point is here is that he willingly takes upon him uh, the, the guilt of this in order to be lessened in the eyes of others, to be held in less esteem. And again, you know, there might be something about this that seems hard to understand or foolhardy. I think unless uh, we see the value and love the virtue uh, to the extent that this monk does, that we would be willing to pay that cost. And again, you know, we're rarely even able to take a just criticism, let alone an unjust one. And you know, Louise had mentioned this that the movie Man of God. And this was one in, you know, until after his death, the slander wasn't acknowledged. And uh again, it's hard for us uh, to imagine it. And you know, the one valuable thing about that movie is that it it makes this virtue come come so alive that it was not an easy thing for him you know again the constant prayer prostrations 
physically humbling himself uh, before God uh, in order that he might be able to endure uh, the slander and the hardship that was coming upon him. And, you know, he was such a holy figure. And, you know, there was one point in the movie, I think, where he says that, you know, that having an office like that is a terrible burden. Uh, because, you know, with the power often comes this great danger of being drawn into pride and being drawn into sin. And, you know, his, the great praise that he received from the people and the love that he received from, from him, you know, may have prevented him from uh, achieving that level of sanctity. Uh, if he had had not undergone the the perfecting that this of that virtue that suffering the cross brought to him, that the beauty of his humility is is perfected and seen and becomes miraculous uh, as he's dying, or uh, you know a, a nun is taking off part of his gar dirty garment and she sets it on the bed where a man who had been crippled from a fall could not move anything in his body at all uh she just sets it on the bed and the final scene of the movie is this you know man standing up in tears fully healed just because the garment of saint nectarius was set upon his bed and had touched him Number 74, a monk, when offended by a certain person, made a prostration to the one who offended him. So, you know, when in mind, perhaps we're having a hard time humbling ourselves, then embody uh, enacting it. And again, that might be one of those things that's hard for us to imagine uh to physically compel ourselves to do something such as this that our hearts might be raging with anger we might be unable to forgive and and so to get down on one's knees before another to physically humble oneself can then lead to the humbling of the mind and the heart you hear a lot about prostrations in the writings of the fathers and uh, and yet uh, we have a tendency, I think, in our day to minimize that practice. You know, we'll do it again liturgically during certain seasons, but uh, I don't think I've ever had anybody in spiritual counsel speak to me about prostrations in prayer. Is that being, you know, a, a part of, of, of one's prayer role? spiritual rule that you would involve the fullness of the self uh in one's praying so that it wouldn't be in only in the mind which is often the case uh rather than uh truly embodying it uh you know i think when we involve the whole self something becomes ingrained it's like as we learn anything 
in this life, when we act upon it, when we practice it, uh, it deeply ingrains it and it becomes natural for us. But if it's only in mind or we're reading about it in books or we're saying it with words, it's you know not necessarily something that uh, is going to become deeply rooted. And it's interesting, you could see Nectarius in that movie doing it over and over again you know, again, involved, engaged in this kind of spiritual warfare of saying the Jesus prayer and prostrating himself after each one, you know, sweat rolling off of him uh, as he's engaged in this battle. Uh, because, you know, it wasn't only the slander, it was the loss of his beloved spiritual father. They had slandered him to one that he had loved and who had loved him. And that he never he never saw him again. His, his spiritual elder died. And so the two of them were never able to experience any kind of uh, reconciliation or, or, or clarity. No, no truth was able to emerge. And so the battle that was going on in his heart was fierce. And you see it enacted then and they engage the full self in this prostration. Louise writes, was this man by prostrating toward the offender signifying the surrender to God's will? So the surrender to God's will, but in a sense, I think also the surrender to the other. You know, again, it's a letting go, I think of one's ego uh, before the other, you know, not clinging uh, to a kind of dignity that we often will cling to. And uh, again, not an easy thing to do, uh, especially with a, an offender, one who's offended us, to, uh, to, in a concrete way, to humble ourselves before them. That's, it takes a lot of grace. Uh, Sharon writes, one of the reasons I haven't been doing prostrations in prayer is that the area rug is knobby and hard on my knees. <laughs> I need to rethink that reasoning. Uh, yeah, you know, I think for all of us, it's true. True, You know, sometimes we're so out of shape or the carpet's rough or we're on, you know, you know, a hard floor or whatever it might be, or we have a hard time getting up and down. You know, we see in this movie, at least, Nectarius doing it out in the garden, you know, in every kind of territory, you know, wherever he felt that he had to. And again, you know, it's this willingness uh, to do what is necessary to preserve virtue, to preserve what is precious. And again, when we think about it, we wouldn't we wouldn't question that in almost every other area of our life you know like on Sundays people watch football and we see guys like flinging their bodies through the air in order to make a touchdown to score you know uh in a game and uh and some of them putting their lives on the line and we know even being crippled because of it and we know guys from the hits in the head you know develop you know uh brain damage to the point that it kills them and still you know we watch it and support it and you know we're it could be addicted to it especially in pittsburgh 
of all places. You know, in every single town, you see those terrible towels in the stands. So, you know, we love our gladiators, you know, uh, uh, and admire them. And, uh, you know, even 30 or 40 years after they haven't played, uh, in the Pittsburgh airport, there's that image of a uh, full-size image of Franco Harris, you know, making the immaculate reception. So everybody coming in and out of the Pittsburgh air airport sees this play being made. Now, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to demonize this, but the idea is that we're, we are willing to make these sacrifices for something that is far less important and enduring or, and certainly for things that aren't necessary for our salvation. Uh, prostration becomes like the groaning when no words suffice of Sissos earlier. That's right. And, you know, where the self on this very deep level is involved. And when words aren't able, again, to capture it, you know, where one is compelled, you know, to fall on one's knees, you know, in, in the face of the trial, um, and, you know, we know that Christ fell three times in carrying the cross. And, you know, there are going to be so many times when we are called to carry a cross and an imitation of him are going to be brought to our knees in one form or another, whether it's in and through, you know, the prostrations in our prayer or because of what it is that, you know, that we are carrying the, the particular suffering. An elder related the following incident. Once upon a time, there were two men who lived in the world. They came to an agreement and left the world to become monks. Carried away by zeal, but not aware that this was a sin, they made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, thinking that this way they were fulfilling the gospel precept. On hearing this, the archbishop excommunicated them. They were angry with him, reckoning that they had done what was right. They went to the Archbishop of Jerusalem and reported the matter to him, but he likewise excommunicated them. Next, they went to the Archbishop of Antioch, but he did the same thing. Finally, they went to the Pope of Rome, since he was considered to be first in honor among the other archbishops, who were, to be sure, brothers and equals. But they heard the same decision from him, too, that is, the confirmation of their ecclesiastical sentence. In perplexity, they said to one another, the one agrees with the other, since they assembled together in synods. But let us go to the saint of God, Epiphanius, the bishop of Cyprus, and he will surely reveal the truth to us, for he is a prophet and is no respecter of persons. As they drew near to entering the city, their intention was disclosed by God to the saint, and he immediately dispatched men to meet them, ordering them not even to enter the city. Then they recovered from the confusion of their sin and said, they have truly, we have uh, perpetrated a sin. Let us suppose that they excommunicated us unjustly. Could it be that this prophet also wronged us? Behold, God revealed our intention to him, and they began to condemn themselves in the strongest terms. When God saw that their hearts were humbled, 
that they had uh, omitted their error, he informed St. Epiphanius, who of his own accord summoned them. After consoling them, he accepted them into ecclesiastical communion. He wrote at once to the Archbishop of Alexandria, receive your spiritual children for they have truly repented. The elder concluded that this was, is what it means for a man to be cured, that he should recognize his error and admit his culpability before God. If he does so, the grace of God will inform other men about such a man's repentance and spiritual condition. So, you know, uh, rather odd story to end with here tonight, but, uh, you know, two men who castrate themselves uh, in order, you know, to fulfill the call to, to purity. And so they do violence to themselves, but not in the way that God calls us uh, to do so. And, uh, and they're excommunicated and their hearts are so hardened in their pride, thinking that they had done well, that they weren't willing to receive the rebuke from any of the, any of the patriarchs, including the Pope. And, uh, and it's only when it's revealed to this saint who also then confirms that even before they enter the town, that they finally come to their wits and, uh, and see that they have sinned. And, you know, we've talked often about religious people being capable of having their delusions and even the worst of them. And this is the perfect example of it. The, 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 when one thinks something is from God, they can become so deeply entrenched on it that they will hold on to it with a death grip. And that this is what these men were willing to do, that despite being excommunicated, cut off from the life of the church and the sacraments, that they were held on to their own vision of the goodness of what they had done and until it was revealed to them through the saint. And uh, so again, this recognition of the truth. Uh, if there's one thing that comes out of this hypothesis that would be good, is it would be that definition of humility, truthful living. And not simply truth in light of our own private judgment, but as we stand in the light of God. Uh, that this is uh, how we are to live our lives. So any final comments or questions about any of the things that we read this evening? Okay, so very challenging. Pray for the grace of God. Pray for me. Very difficult, I know. But pray that God would reveal to us the beauty of the virtue that we would desire. So when we close there, as always, with, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.